I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me uh, first to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, it's on page 61 if you're using one of the Bibles here. Here in Exodus 20, we'll be reading the fifth commandment in verse 12. And this is the holy and inspired word of God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We're going to turn also to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. And also just read one verse from there, verse 7. There it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So far from God's holy word. We're going to turn also to the catechism in the back of the hymnal we sang from. To Lord's Day 39. Lord's Day 39. If you are unfamiliar with what a catechism is, uh, it's simply just a teaching tool that the church has used for many years now. And what it does is presents uh, biblical truth in question and answer format. And so it asks questions and then we respond with answers, answers that are ultimately derived from God's word, which is our ultimate authority. And so here, uh, Lord's Day 39 provides us with an exposition of the fifth commandment from Exodus chapter 20. Uh, what, do we, what does it mean to honor our father and our mother? What is God's will for us in that commandment? And so I'll read the question and then we'll respond together uh, with the answer. To question 104, in the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal, page 891, it asks, What is God's will for you in the fifth commandment? That I show honor, love, and faithfulness to my father and mother and all those in authority over me. Submit myself with proper obedience to all their good teaching and discipline. And also that I be patient with their failings, for by their hand God wills to rule us. So far from the catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Back in 1784, a question went out in Germany, and the question was this, what is enlightenment? What is enlightenment? In many ways, that question was meant to, be, to, de- to define the modern age. What is this enlightenment that has come upon the world? And one somewhat known philosopher, Immanuel Kant, uh, answered that question in this way, in his essay, What is Enlightenment?, He had said, enlightenment is man's leaving his self-caused immaturity. Immaturity is the incapacity to use one's own intelligence without the guidance of another. Such immaturity is self-caused if it is not caused by lack of intelligence, but by lack of determination and courage to use one's intelligence without being guided by another. Dare to know is the motto. Have the courage to use your own intelligence, your own reason, and therefore the motto is therefore, this this is therefore the motto of the Enlightenment. In many ways, Immanuel Kant's words here are defining not only of his day back in the end of the 1700s, but also of our own day as well. 
you'll notice that what was presented as a virtue, right, as the courageous thing for the world to do is to throw off all authority, throw off all tradition, throw off all those who would guide you and lead you, and instead, ultimately, be a law unto yourself. And that idea of being a law unto yourself is literally what the word autonomy means. Autonomy, auto, means self. Namas means law. You are a law unto yourself. And in many ways, that is the defining characteristic, the defining mark of our age even today. Autonomy. Not submitting yourself uh, to anything outside of yourself, but having the courage, as it's said, uh, to uh, forge your own path, define for yourself what is worth pursuing, define for yourself meaning and purpose, and therefore that becomes what is defining of our own age, autonomy. But in the midst of our age, uh, God has spoken. Uh, the one who has made the heavens and the earth, the one who has created you, has spoken. And he has said that autonomy and an autonomous way of living is not the way in which God has formed you. It's not the way in which God has wired the creation uh, around him. Not autonomy, but submitting to proper authority is God's will for us, even as, re- as it's revealed to us in the fifth commandment. And we can begin to see and recognize that the fifth commandment then has a tremendous amount of application and a tremendous amount of relevance for our own lawless, autonomous age. The simple command, honor your father and your mother, begins to recognize that God has placed in this creation, built into the fabric of this world, authority structures that are meant to be heeded if we are to receive the blessing of God, and even as the commandment says in Exodus chapter 20, to live long in the land that God is giving you. Right? The idea of flourishing in the land, of things going well, requires of us to recognize that God has placed in this world proper authority structures. Now, yes, authority can be abused, and we can talk about that as well. But authority, as God has put it in this world, is not in and of itself evil or wrong, but it's proper for us than to submit to that, beginning with the family, as we're going to see, but then also extending that, not only to the family, but within society, and also within the church also. And one uh, strong apologetic, uh, one strong defense against the um, autonomy, autonomous view of the Enlightenment is that the Enlightenment did not bring about Enlightenment at all. Um, In fact, those who sought to live in an autonomous way, you can go back to maybe the French Revolution, see the amount of bloodshed that that took place then, you come to recognize that this so-called enlightenment, as Immanuel Kant had defined it and others, was no true enlightenment, uh, but was actually more an endarkenment, which I thought was actually a made-up word. I had written it down in my notes, and the squigglies underneath the word didn't, you know, the red squigglies in the word document didn't pop up. So apparently that's an actual word. So it really was not an enlightenment, but an endarkenment to live uh, autonomously. And so, for us then to think through the fifth commandment and the way it stands countercultural, the way it stands against the spirit of the age of autonomy, uh, we first need to recognize that authority begins with God. 
that, that to properly recognize the authority structures in the world around us, we need to first recognize that all authority, first and foremost, belongs to the God who made us. We see this, for example, reflected in Genesis chapter 1, that as God speaks, he's speaking sort of these divine fiats, these decrees, and the authority of his word is so great that what he speaks must come into existence. Let there be light, God ushers from his throne, and there is light. Right? God speaks in the six days of creation as the one who is king over all that he has made. Authority begins with God. and In fact, he then creates image bearers. He creates people, men and women, made in his image. And part of what it means to be made in God's image is then that we are to reflect his authority, his rule, his power throughout uh, the world as his image bearers. But authority begins with recognizing that, all, that it, it belongs first and foremost to God in creation. But God has also shown that all authority begins to him, belongs to him also in new creation, in redemption. That God had promised throughout history that a seed of the woman is coming who will crush the head of the serpent. And this seed would, would fulfill the promise given to Abraham that he would inherit the entire world. The Apostle Paul speaks about that in Romans 4. And furthermore, that the son of Abraham would ultimately be a son of David who would ascend the throne and sit over all of creation as the ruler and king. This is what is um, looked forward to, for example, in Psalm 2. You can turn there with me, if you'd like. Uh, Psalm 2, where we read of the Lord establishing this king. Psalm 2, verse 1 says, Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against uh, together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But notice God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him." And so we recognize here in Psalm 2, right, is this prophecy that one day a king will come who will fulfill all that God has said and will establish an eternal throne over all of creation forever and ever. And we recognize that this prophecy of this coming king whom the Lord will establish on his holy hill is fulfilled in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We speak of him as Lord. We speak of him as King the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one to whom the kings of the earth must, must look to, the ones whom the lords of the earth must look to. 
Right, ultimately, the one in whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given is Jesus Christ. And that is a fact of history that God has sent into this world his Son, who is that Son who will reign forever and ever. He is the Son that the Apostle Paul speaks of in Philippians uh, chapter 2, reminding us that he has been given a name that is above every name. Notice Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul reminds us, if these pages don't stick together on me. <laughs> there we go. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this, on the basis of Christ's willingness to come, humble himself, and die on the cross for sinners, it's there, it says in this, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we need to recognize then that if we are to properly understand the authority structures that God has placed in the world around us, First and foremost, we need to recognize the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord. That he is the one that God has established over creation. And it's not until I submit myself to his good and gracious reign that I can then go out and recognize the authority structures properly in my family and in society around us. It begins with recognizing Jesus Christ as Lord. And so there's a lot more that could be said about this, um, but we need to kind of keep moving here uh, because our time is short for this opening uh, first sermon here. And so first we need to recognize that authority begins with God, that God has created us not to be autonomous, but to submit, submit to him as our creator and submit to Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of heaven and earth. And following that, then, we come to recognize that as those who recognize Christ, we are then to recognize the authority structures that God has placed first in the family, right? This is what the fifth commandment is first getting at. Honor your father and your mother. So to properly flourish in this world, right, for a society uh, to have stability and to have orderliness, right, it begins with children recognizing that God has placed your parents over you as authorities, as those not whom you submit, not just because they're good to you and provide for you, but because God has given to them proper authority over you that we are to honor. What does it mean for you to honor your father and your mother? Well, it begins with offering them proper reverence, recognizing that they are truly above me recognizing that they are those whom God has placed over me and whose authority that I am under. To honor your father and your mother also means to offer obedience to them. That when your father and your mother ask you to do something or require of you something, then we do it, recognizing that in obeying our parents, we are saying that God has placed them over me. To obey your parents is to obey God. To disobey your parents is ultimately to disobey God. These are very basic things that God is saying. It must be true of our homes and our families. So there is reverence, recognizing them as authorities. 
There's obedience uh, to their word. And there's also gratefulness uh, towards them as well, being thankful uh, towards our parents. And maybe here is one area where we see the lack of honor in society around us towards parents, right? There's simply the assumption that my, my, my parents provide for me. Uh, there's merely this, uh, you know, you think of the spoiled brat kind of mentality. Mom and dad must give me whatever I want. But that reverses, again, the call that God says you must honor your father and your mother. Part of that means being grateful for what they provide for you. A home, a safe place, protection, uh, love and care when you're scared or when you're afraid of right of something. Right? All of these things we're to be grateful for. And this is what it means then to honor our father and our mother. So as we first recognize that I belong to the Lord, that I am under him, and therefore in response to that, I honor my father and my mother, I reverence them, I have obedience towards them, and I'm also grateful towards them. That's what the catechism gets out as well. But it also reminds us that we are not only to honor our father and our mother when they are perfect or when they get everything right, no, your, your father and your mother get things wrong. Uh, they, they do. And parents here, I'm sure, could also sympathize with that. I, I'm not a parent myself at the moment, um, but I've also uh, obviously spoken to many moms and dads. And there at times could be a sense of grief, a sense of guilt, that I have not been a perfect father. I've not been a perfect mother. And you can kind of maybe even seeing some of your failings in, in, your, own Christian, in your own children's life. And that can be a heavy burden that you, you can bear. But be comforted and, and reminded that God does not call you to be perfect. Now, yes, he does call you ultimately to be perfect, but he doesn't, ex- he doesn't expect that necessarily. Right? He calls us to these tasks, but he also recognizes that we are those yet perfect. We are those yet to be um, complete and made mature in Christ. And so there are failings. But notice what the Catechism says, very comforting words. It says this at the end of the answer. It says that I am to submit into them and honor them, and that I be patient, that I be patient with their failings. That I be patient with their failings. And so, children, you're to be patient with the failings of your parents. It doesn't give you the right or the opportunity if your parents do fail. Uh, to rebel against them, to make their work difficult. And likewise, parents, you can take comfort in knowing that as well. And so, as we've said, this commandment begins with recognizing first God's authority, and then its first application is in the home. And from here, God, this commandment also expands to the other authority structures that God has placed in our lives, including that of uh, the government, As Christians, we are properly to submit to the authority of the government, recognizing that just as parents received their authority from God, so too the government, those over us, receive their authority from God as well. This is what Paul teaches in Romans 13, for example. You can turn there or listen as well. Romans 13 The Apostle Paul says, Let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, 
Whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And you'll notice, what it, how, in what sense is it owed to them? Well, not on the basis necessarily of their person or what they have done, but on the basis of their office that they have been given by God. They are God's servant. Language that I believe is echoed, echoing from the Old Testament when various uh, Babylonian kings like Cyrus and others uh, were referred to as the Lord's servant in the sense that they carried out his bidding, uh, though it was often against uh, their own will or even them recognizing it uh, himself. Um, The Lord would send, for example, the Babylonians and the Assyrians against Israel um, in order to judge them. Uh, but they, and while the Assyrians and the Babylonians thought that they were doing their own will and conquering and whatever, ultimately they were the Lord's servant, even in uh, those things. Paul's echoing uh, that language here, I believe. And so again, the Apostle Paul, and there's a lot that can be opened up here, and we don't necessarily have the time to do so in, in a catechism sermon, uh, but it's first and foremost to recognize that our governing authorities, the three branches of our government that we are under, are properly instituted by God, and they are therefore owed our honor, our respect, and our obedience. Now, yes, you know, we have to then begin to say, ask the question, well, what if they begin requiring of me something that God says I'm not to do? Or what if they begin requiring of me something that God says belongs to him only? All right, well, Jesus provides us with a very simple answer to that. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's why Paul says that if you owe taxes, then you should pay your taxes, right? even in this text here. right? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. There are things that properly belong to him. But render to God the things that are God. Now, when Caesar begins to demand things that belong to God, then the Christian has the right and has the obligation to resist what Caesar requires of you, right? If Caesar requires you to bow down before an idol that he has constructed, well, then you, like the three Hebrew boys, stand against that, though everybody else bows down, despite the consequences. Now, part of that also means that as God's people, he calls us then that if we are to resist, that if we are not to offer obedience because Caesar is requiring something that belongs to God, then we must also be ready and willing to bear the consequences of that as well. A fiery furnace or whatever else might stand before us. It's not for us then to begin uh, engaging in a sinful uh, manner of, get, of getting around consequences of resistance, but it's simply saying that if I am to resist, then I'm also to, uh, to undergo the punishment and the consequences for that, even if it is unjust, even if it is unfair. That is part of what it means to honor those in authority over me. You can read, for example, the whole letter of First Peter. It's all about suffering unfairly, suffering unjustly. 
nothing new for the church today. It's nothing new because the church has endured that from the very beginning and it continues to do so into our own day as well. Right? And so there's a lot more that can be said about though, but those are basic principles that we need to recognize. But it also provides us with a, this, you know, this proper resistance provides us with a warning as well. That when Caesar begins to say that certain lifestyles or certain things are safe, though God has said they are not safe because the wrath of God stands against them, we take notice and recognize that the authorities, because they, are, they, they, they derive their authority from God, cannot keep you safe from that which God says his wrath is coming against. Right? So it doesn't matter how much the President of the United States, to whom honor and respect is owed, says that uh, this city or this country will be safe for homosexuality, that this country will be safe for abortion, that this country will be safe for transgender uh, ideology. It doesn't matter how much he says that you will be safe here under American law because ultimately his authority and the government's authority is, not, is, is derived. And when the wrath of the Lamb comes, no matter how much strength the United States government has in this world, it will not stand before the wrath of the Lamb to whom proper authority begins. Right As we said earlier, to recognize authority structures begins first with recognizing that Jesus Christ is Lord, then goes into the family, and then goes out into society. But note that, again, when authorities begin to usurp and try to usurp the authority of Christ, and to say that they can keep you safe from what he has said, judgment is coming, well, then we need to recognize that they have overstepped their bounds and cannot be trusted and they cannot offer true security and safety. If I can read uh, one passage for you, it's a very symbolic um, passage, but one that's um, helpful to see this is Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, and we'll come to a conclusion here in a moment. There it says in verse 11, Revelation 19, verse 11, the Apostle John says that I saw heaven opened. All right, so Christ today is King of kings, Lord of lords, reigning at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, hidden from sight, but his rule is nonetheless real. And so the Apostle John sees heaven opened where Christ reigns, and behold, he says, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Right. So the king of heaven is now riding forth to this earth to bring his judgment, rightfully so. Again, as king of kings and lord of lords. Verse 15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, echoing Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come! 
gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Right? There is none of this earth that can offer protection against the wrath of the Lamb who is coming swiftly. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Right? This is a very powerful scene that the Apostle John foresees of the day of Christ's return. And we had spoken the words of the Apostles' Creed that we believe that Christ will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. This is that judgment. And therefore, right, properly so today, we are to recognize the authority of Jesus Christ, to bow the knee before him, to confess that he is Lord. Because today, Jesus Christ sends out his word. The Lord of heaven sends out his word as a gracious word as words of peace, that if those who recognize him today as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, those who submit to him and believe that he is such, will not face the wrath that is to come, will not face the wrath that no person and no institution and no country could protect you against and from. He's saying, today, come to me. Terms of peace are offered and you will find, as many have found, and we have, many of us here have found, that Jesus Christ, as he calls us to recognize his kingship, is one who is kind, one who is gracious, even one who shares his glory with us. And therefore, there is no reason to continue to rebel against him, right? When we begin to rebel against Christ, against what God has established, our end is destruction, But if you submit to Jesus Christ, if you know him as Lord, then you can, with eagerness and with great joy, look forward to the day of his return. Because the one who once judged you, rather the one who was coming to judge the world, had been judged for you on the cross already. He stood in your place. He endured the penalty. He died for you. And therefore, when he comes again, he comes not to judge you, but to usher you into eternal life to be with him forever and ever into a place where no, every tear will be wiped away from your eye, where death will be no more, and you will dwell with your Savior, your King, in his glory forever and ever. That is the destiny of those who recognize the authority that God has revealed to us in his word and come and submit to Jesus Christ, who is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and we confess him today as such. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good news to us, a word that reminds us and teaches us that Jesus Christ is that longed-for King who has been established above all, of the one who today reigns at your right hand. Thank you that he is our King. Thank you that he rules us by his word and his spirit today. And Father, we pray that we would then live rightful, uh, properly in this life recognizing that the authority structures here have been, in, have been set in place by you 
And so help us then to relate properly, to honor those over us, whether it is our parents, whether it is those um, in government, uh, whether it is those in the church, whether it is our teachers at school. Father, this command has many uh, implications for us. And so help us then to do so, and in doing so, knowing know that we are glorifying, glorifying and honoring you, our God and our King. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.